0: Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Uh, hey, you made it. We are in our final week of this series, Take Back Your Life, and, uh, For some of you, maybe this is the first time you've done anything for five weeks in a row, and if so, way to go. Uh, If you're just joining the conversation today, that's fine too. We're excited uh, that you're here, but it has been a great start to the year. What we've been trying to do together is basically look at some of those things that hold us back in life, Uh, not so much like habits or actions that we do, but specifically, we spend a lot of time talking about our thoughts and, and about how if we think right, it will lead to us living rightly, and it's impossible to think wrong and live right. So uh, we talked about that. What we're doing through this series is we're trying to root out some of the dysfunctional thoughts that we have, maybe dysfunctional patterns that have shown up along the way, ways of thinking that are toxic. And so I've done this every week in the series so far. uh, One last time, I'm gonna give you a rapid fire recap of where we've been the past five weeks. And so we started things off uh, with the new year with a wake up call. And we essentially said uh, that we need to be awake and we need to be aware about the reality that we have one life that we've been given. And if we're not careful, uh, we can let our own lives slip away from us, that you are your own worst enemy and I'm my own worst enemy because what we can tend to do is we just get busy. It's not that we're bad, we just get busy and life can kind of slip away from us and then suddenly we're 40 or 50 or 60 or beyond and we're like, oh my gosh, Where did my life go? And so uh, we talked about being intentional and guarding ourselves and keeping ourselves so that we stayed focused on who God wants us to be. And specifically, we said we have to guard ourselves against two things, uh, that we need to not give in and we need to not give up. That there's so many pressures and voices on us trying to get us to give in and, and to live life a different way than maybe God intended. And Honestly, it can be easy to be tempted to give up when life is difficult, but we said in week one that uh, God can bring beautiful things even out of the most broken situations. And then week two, uh, we moved on. Once you wake up, the first thing that kind of needs to adjust is your eyesight. And so we talked about the things that we see in life and how what we see in life is a big deal because what we see shapes what we believe and what we believe shapes the way that we ultimately behave. And so we talked about letting light into our lives, uh, that we talked about where we're focusing and needing to be intentional about that as well. And then at the end, we talked about how God wants us to have bright eyes in the way that we approach our life, that God doesn't just want us like seeing clearly, but dull and drudging through it all, uh, but rather God wants us to live lives that are adventurously expectant, that are always on the lookout for what he is gonna do next In week three, we talked about how often we're tempted to live in either fight or flight mode, uh, depending on your personality and temperament and where you've been. Uh, But we specifically talked about that in the arena of shame, that all of us have uh, shameful moments in our past, and it's painful sometimes to talk about them, but nothing can hold us back and nothing can take a hold of our life quite like shame does. And so what we really clarified, and this is really important, uh, we said that God will never use shame as a motivator to get you to change. Sometimes churches have done that. Sometimes leaders do that. Sometimes parents do it, like if you get frustrated. But, but God never leverages shame to try and shape us into the people he wants us to be. So we said we need to silence the voice of shame in our lives and instead turn up the volume on who God says that we are. And, and then finally, last week, uh, we acknowledged that you can't live right if you're thinking wrong. We, we talked about winning the battle in your mind and spent a whole lot of time talking about taking captive our thoughts that we're actually instructed to think about what is good and what is lovely and what is pure and admirable. And, and anything that's not that, you can't necessarily take it back. You can't unthink a thought, but you can replace a thought. So we talked about the idea of taking those thoughts captive. And the reason that was a big deal is because the thoughts that you hold on to, right, the things that you think about again and again and again and again, ultimately determine the future that you head into. So that's where we've been. And today, as we wrap things up, uh, I want to focus on what it looks like to take back your life by really taking back a picture of what faith is supposed to look like, uh, by what it looks like to really follow and understand what it looks like to, to follow and worship God. And here's the thing, we've talked about some good stuff over the past four weeks, and hopefully you've applied some of it. Uh, like, hopefully you've started, like, thinking, man, what am I really paying attention to, and how much light am I letting into my life, or where are my thoughts leading me? Maybe you've, like, decided you're going to get intentional about yourself, that you do need to guard this man or guard this woman, and and so you've developed some new habits. All of that stuff is really good stuff, but the thing we're going to talk about today is the thing that can really make the whole thing, because if you take all those things and you apply them in your own strength and in your own power, it might as well just be a New Year's resolution, right? Because what we tend to do is we try and white-knuckle things, and we try and develop discipline, and discipline's not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination, but if you don't root taking back your life in a real living and active relationship with God, it'll just become another trap. It'll just become another thing that you get caught up in along the way. And ultimately, you'll be missing the point. Or to sum up what I mean about where we're going today, I'd put it this way. It's that you can do the right things in the wrong way. You can do all the right things in the wrong way. And to illustrate what I mean by that, um, I want to run you through A little bit of history uh, because did you know that it was common knowledge in the late 1800s and early 1900s that malaria was caused by ants like common knowledge all of the experts agreed around the turn of the century that that malaria the disease that can spread like crazy and impact communities in devastating ways they believed that it was spread by ants and so the experts uh, did everything they could in that day to try and remove ants in their regions where yellow fever and malaria tended to spread. And so this misthinking, this misunderstanding was a really tragic thing and ultimately was responsible for the deaths of 20,000 people during one of the most ambitious building projects in human history and that's the building of the Panama Canal. And I'm gonna geek out about the Panama Canal for just a second, because I think it's a really incredible thing. Like, People literally carved a channel through a continent effectively. Like, that's a crazy thing that we accomplished. And it was this 50-mile stretch called the Panama Canal. It links the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And the goal behind digging out this canal was so that ships wouldn't have to travel all the way around South America to get to the other side, uh, but rather they could save themselves that 8,000-mile journey by just cutting through Central America. And uh, the project was started by the French. It took 30 years to build And the cost in today's dollars, a total of $7 billion. Some of us get frustrated when they close an attraction at the Magic Kingdom, right? And we're like, it's going to be two months. But this was 30 years, $7 billion. And uh, during the first two decades that the project was undertaken, there were about 20,000 to 22,000 people who died. And almost all of them died from yellow fever or malaria. And none of them got those diseases from ants. Okay, but but here's what was happening. Here's the really tragic part of the situation. Experts in that day were so convinced that ants were the ones who were spreading this disease uh, that they implemented some mitigation strategies. And so around all the fruit trees in the region where the canal was being built, they dug what were called cockery rings, which were these uh, little moats essentially around all the trees that they filled with water because they thought if there's water, the ants won't cross the water and they won't get on the trees and they won't get in our food and they'll be safe. Uh, they did the same thing in hospitals. They put these little basins of water around each of the legs of the hospital. Hospital beds, all four legs, had little basins of water to keep the ants from crawling onto the hospital beds. And here's the thing. Do you know what really, really likes man-made stagnant pools of water? Mosquitoes, which actually spread malaria and yellow fever and and so it it was tragic that they they installed all of these mitigation strategies but it was actually the very thing that was multiplying the effect of the spread of this disease and like I said the French started the project eventually uh, the Americans stepped in and under Teddy Roosevelt's leadership we decided to finish it mostly because we wanted a canal uh, for military travel but that's a different topic for a different day but eventually we put two and two together and we realized that no no malaria is not caused by ants malaria is spread like crazy through specific types of mosquitoes and so uh, they removed all the little moats around the trees and, and got rid of the basins of water in the hospital beds. And uh, they decided to install some window screens and put some nets up. And what happened in the last 10 years of the project, all the way up to 1915 when the canal actually opened, uh, only 3,000 additional people died versus the 22,000 that died in the two decades previously. You can do the right thing in the wrong way. It was the right thing for them to try and get after this disease, to try and contain it, to try and stop the spread. But they had the wrong enemy, right? They had the wrong source. And so they were doing the right things. They had their mitigation strategies in place. But ultimately, it didn't make a difference. And the reason that's a big deal for us today is the same thing can happen for us as it relates to our faith. You can do the right thing or appear to do the right thing. You can look really good on the outside, but inside be missing the point. And you can take back your life. You can apply all the things we've talked about the past few weeks, but if it's not rooted in an active relationship with Jesus, it might be the right thing done in the wrong way. And the text I want us to look at together today, uh, we're actually going to see two people who appear to be doing the right thing, who appear to be righteous and trying to follow God, but when you look at the substance, they're actually doing it in the wrong way, and it actually leads to some bad consequences for them. One of them, it ends his life. It doesn't take back his life. And the other, it removes her. Uh, from the story of God and what he was doing at that time. So this sort of this warning tale for us about how our faith can look impressive on the outside, but if we're not paying attention to what's really going on on the inside, it might ultimately might be empty. So I'm going to just read this to you. It's a little longer, so buckle up and track with me, and I'll give you some context at the end. But it's a story about King David, uh, who had just recently become the king of ancient Israel. He was one of the great kings uh, who led God's people, and at this point he had just uh, recaptured the city of Jerusalem, and he was entering back in to basically set up his rule. Here's what the text says in Second Samuel, that David again brought together all of the able young men of Israel, 30,000 of them total. And he and all of his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals, which, fun fact, I made some comment in the first service about how I can't get enough of the sistral, sistrum. Sorry. Lindsay Bullhoffer took it upon herself to look that up. It, it basically was like a tambourine, so if you didn't know, now you do. But anyway, they're making a bunch of noise. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, uh, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? So out of context, this is one of those stories that just makes it seem like God is a little unhinged, right? <laughs> like, like, God just gets grumpy some days and he just takes people out. In fact, uh, this story is used by people who want to be critical of faith, and they say, like, look at how temperamental this God of the Old Testament is. Look at how flippantly he just like takes people out because they touched the wrong thing or whatever. It seems like God was grumpy this day, uh, but in context, there was actually a lot more happening behind the scenes besides God not getting his Wheaties. And so, uh. First, you need to know that bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem was a huge deal to David. Because like I said, David had just recently become the king of Israel. And one of the things that he was after is he wanted to be and was known as a man who was after God's heart, but he wanted the people of Israel to put God back at the center of their nation and back at the center of their worship. And so in his effort to please God, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of what would eventually be called David's city, Jerusalem. Uh, Because the Ark of the Covenant was this place where the presence of God was kept. In that day, in their religious practice, the Ark of the Covenant was where the people met with God. It was where the priest went in and would offer sacrifices. It was this holy, sacred place, and it represented the presence of God with them. And so David wanted to bring that back into the center of the nation of Israel. And the reason it wasn't there is because a group of people called the Philistines had actually taken it from Israel in a previous war. Uh, they had had this war, and the Philistines won. They basically took the Ark of the Covenant like a trophy. It, it was basically like a lucky rabbit's foot to them. They thought, hey, this thing looks cool. We don't know what it's about. But they took it back to their nation, and they found out that it actually wasn't good luck at all. Uh, as the story continues. They had a series of bad luck because they had taken the Ark of the Covenant and it was some real like Indiana Jones kind of stuff if you want to check it out. But eventually they have so much bad luck, they're like, we got to get this thing out of here. This Ark is the problem. And so the Philistines load it up on a cart. They bring it back into the nation of Israel and they basically dump it in the backyard of a guy named Abinadab. A- and Abinadab is important because Abinadab is Uzzah, the guy who got lightning bolted. Uh, it's, uh, he's Uzzah's dad. Okay, so they drop off the Ark of the Covenant in Abinadab's backyard, and it sat there for 30 years. It it sat there in Abinadab and Uzzah and Ohio. Uh, They took care of it. They made sure that the presence of God was there and kept safe, and and then at this point, David enters back into Jerusalem. He conquers the city. He declares himself as king, and then he invites the Ark of the Covenant to be returned to its rightful place at the center of the people of God, And, and so he calls up Uzzah, but the problem enters in because Uzzah decides he's going to do it in style. In the text, it says Uzzah got a new cart, and he put the Ark of the Covenant on that new cart and had it pulled by oxen. And the reason that Uzzah did this, we don't exactly know. Maybe he just wanted to make a big show. He wanted it to be a spectacle. It was a big deal. Uh, and maybe he was pulling out all the stops. But the problem is pulling the Ark of the Covenant on a cart is what the Philistines did. Pulling the Ark of the Covenant in that way is something that Uzzah had seen the enemies of God do. And and in fact, I don't know if you've brushed up on your Exodus lately, but in Exodus 25, uh, Moses actually lays out very specific instructions about the only way that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be transported. Uh, Specifically, it prohibited any method of transportation except there were these four rings on the side of the Ark with these long poles that got uh, stretched through them. And then there were four guys who weren't just any guys but they were uh, priests from the line of Levi. They were descendants of Moses. And these four priests were the only ones who were authorized to carry the ark. And it was this instruction that God laid out and and said there was no other way that the ark was supposed to be moved. But Uzzah decides to improve things. (laughs) Uzzah decides he knows better that it's a good show and he wants to make sure he impresses the people or whatever it is. And so he puts it on his cart like the Philistines did. And, And then much worse, The oxen start pulling it, but then they start to stumble. The ark starts to tip, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to stop it, which touching the ark of the covenant is a big no-no, and so as he does, God strikes him down on the spot, and he died. And look, I know that still seems harsh, okay? Like, even in the context, you're like, this still seems like God got kind of mad. Like, that doesn't seem like a good thing. But the reality is, what happened in that moment was just the tip of the iceberg of what was going on in Uzzah's life. It, It wasn't like God just got grumpy that day and decided Uzzah was his target, but rather... Uzzah had clearly missed something, not just in that moment, but for a long time, because remember, he had spent the last 30 years guarding this box. I mean, at this point, it was probably the majority of his life that he had spent around the Ark of the Covenant, and he knew the regulations, he knew the rules, he knew the instructions, he knew what he was supposed to do. And so the problem wasn't just that he reached out to touch the box, but the problem is that obviously Uzzah had decided he was a little self-important. Uzzah had an important job to do. And he allowed it to go to his head and make him arrogant about the way that he approached his faith. And that can be an easy thing for any of us to fall into. Right? As you're taking back your life, if you start to make progress and you start to feel like you're really growing and you're really becoming the person that God wants you to be, it can be really easy to become a little self-important when we think about how important the job that God gave each of us is. Right? Like God told all of us that it's our job to help spread the word about who he is and what he's done. But unfortunately, that can lead many Christians into what I would call just like a religious spirit about us. And in fact, Uzzah represents for us this sort of religious spirit where you get puffed up and where you're concerned about what things look like on the outside without maybe paying attention to what's going on on the inside. Uh, Eugene Peterson is a pastor and an author, and he uh, translated the version of the Bible called the message that we use from time to time around here, but he also wrote a biography on the life of King David, and in that biography, he actually gives a really clear snapshot of what was going on with Uzzah. He says it like this, that Uzzah is the person who has God in a box and officially assumes responsibility for keeping God safe from the mud and dust of the world. Men and women keep showing up who take it upon themselves to protect God from the vulgarity of sinners and the ignorance of common people. Uzzah's death wasn't sudden. It was years in the making. See, Uzzah had gotten arrogant. He had gotten puffed up. He thought that it was his job to control God. And here's the point today. I'll give it to you kind of early. The point is you can do everything right in trying to take back your life. Like maybe you took all the notes the past four weeks and you've been like applying it and you've got some new rhythms or new habits that you've picked up along the way. And that's amazing. But if that's not founded on an actual heart level, right relationship with Jesus, then you're just gonna find yourself in another trap, right? You'll find yourself in the trap of religious behavior or, or, or of discipline or of trying to look good enough or trying to keep up with it or trying to do enough. And, and if that dynamic is all about your control, I'm going to give you a cheesy line that rhymes, okay? So buckle up for it. If it's all about your control, here's the thing. A religion that you can control has no power to save your soul. It's a good rhyme, right? Uh, Seriously, like a, a religion that you can control doesn't have the power to actually change you from the inside out because it's all about your effort at the end of the day. And that was the story of Uzzah. Like he put out his hand to take care of God. That's how backwards his understanding of the relationship was. He put the Ark of the Covenant on his new little toy cart and off he went to go be impressive to the people. And that sounds silly in context, but how many of us do the same thing? Might be a little tension filled for a second, okay? But how many of us are like, hey, okay, God, I'll give you my hour on Sunday, right? I'll give you an hour a week. Or let's be honest, like I know attendance patterns. I'll give you an hour every 3 to 4 weeks. <laughs> like, right? I mean that's that's what it is. So I'll give you that or I'll say the right things. I know what I'm supposed to say even though I also know what's really going on in my heart, right? I'll listen to the right music cuz that seems like the right thing. There's like a whole industry of right music that I should listen to. So maybe that's the thing that I'm supposed to do. How about this one? I'll have the right enemies. Right? I'll put down the right people to look like I fit in with the people of God. I'll vote the right way or the left way, whichever you think it is. Like We all can fall into this same kind of religious, external focus, puffed up behavior while ignoring the state of our hearts. And what we're doing when we do that is we essentially build our own God that it's our job to keep propped up, to keep looking good, to keep protecting us, essentially. And here's the thing. That's not who God, as he's revealed through Jesus, is. You don't want a God that you have to keep propped up. You want a God who can keep you propped up. That you and a God who can catch you if you fall, not a God that you've got to keep from tipping over along the way. And, and so it's so important that we get this right. And as the story continues, David's reaction to this situation is really revealing too, because God strikes down Uzzah in this moment. I mean, remember, David's big goal was to return the presence of God in the middle of the people, And so it was a great goal. It was the right thing. It happened in the wrong way. And David's watching his beautiful plan fall apart and his friend is gone. And the text says, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to that day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So David loses his friend. He loses his plan, right? It all kind of falls apart. And the text tells us that he's angry that he's confused, that he's disillusioned with God. He's like, what, what just happened, right? I was doing the right thing, and, and this all went crazy. But again, this kind of reveals to us that God wasn't just trigger happy that day and looking to blow somebody up, because David is openly angry with God. And, and if God was just on the war path, he'd be like, you're next, buddy, right? But that's not what God does. God does this thing with Uzzah, but then for David, it says that God does nothing but continue to pour out blessing, that God does nothing but continue to bless, even in the face of David's anger and confusion and misunderstanding. And, and a part of that that we need to get today is that God can handle your emotion. That God's big enough for whatever you're feeling in the midst of whatever you're facing. God's big enough for your anger. He's big enough to hold on to you when you're frustrated and when you're confused and when you're hurting and when you're crying. Like, He's not intimidated by those things. And so, David is upset with God he's angry at God and he decides, hey, I'm done with the whole project. Okay. The ark's not coming to Jerusalem. Just drop it at Obed-Edom's house. We'll figure it out later. Okay. So the ark goes to Obed-Edom's house. And again, the text says that God just keeps pouring out blessing, that God is so good that even when David is ignoring him, when David is angry at him and frustrated him, God continues to pour out blessing. And then three months go by and David decides it's time for a do-over. Say, all right, we're going to try and bring this thing back where it belongs again. And so it continues that King David was told that the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything that he has because of the Ark of God. And so David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So David takes three months. I don't know if he's just like healing and thinking about his failed plan and trying to learn the lesson, whatever may be in it. But eventually he decides like, hey, it's time to try again. It's time to try again. And so David was a musician. He calls up his musician buddies and is like, hey, we need the band together. Like, let's make some loud noise. They cook some really good food. They have this party in Jerusalem. And then he goes out and they get the ark and they carry it the right way this time. Okay, they put the poles in it and the Levites are carrying it. And the text says that they take six steps and they're moving towards the city. And before they take the seventh step, David stops them and he sacrifices a bull and a fattened calf. Again, that sounds weird in our context, okay? Don't do that at your next party. But in in their context, this was a really significant move that David made. This was like the opposite of what Uzzah did because David shows up and, and as they're bringing the presence of God back into the center of the people effectively, David takes this calf and this bull and he offers what's called a burnt offering. And a burnt offering was a very specific thing in that day uh, where essentially there was this like transfer of guilt that happened. A priest would take whatever animal was being sacrificed and they would essentially put onto that animal the sins of the people. They would admit, hey, we're broken. We've done things wrong. And we know we deserve punishment, but we're gonna give it to this animal and sacrifice this animal in the face of what we deserve. And so that's what David does as he's welcoming the presence of God back into the midst of the people. He says, hey, this thing has to start with humility and brokenness and dependence on God, not on a puffed up, arrogant, look at me kind of a show. A- and it's really significant that they made this sacrifice between the sixth and the seventh step because in Hebrew culture, seven was a number that represented completeness, that, that upon making this sacrifice and bringing the presence of God back into the people, then it was complete. But again, it's the total opposite of us religious parade right? David shows up in humility and he says, hey, I need forgiveness. I need connection with God before I welcome him in to this place. And then David keeps going. And it says, wearing a linen ephod or linen cloak, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might when he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So David, he does something significant here that's not really spelled out in the text. But remember, David was newly made the king. And if, like, just picture a king in your mind. Kings always wear like big fancy hats and big crazy robes, right? The king of Israel was no different. He had a cloak that he would wear that showed his power and his prestige as the king of the nation. But the text tells us that David starts dancing, wearing a linen ephod or wearing linen clothing. And what that means is that at some point, as he's welcoming the presence of God amongst the people, not only does he make a sacrifice, but he took off his kingly robe and laid it down. Basically, the statement that David is making that, hey, there's another king passing by right now. Hey, I might be the king of Israel, but God is the king of all of us. And as we welcome his presence back in. It was this act of humility where David lays down his robe and then he starts dancing like a fool in his linen cloak underneath. And some of the people saw him and they probably thought, wow, that guy's passionate, right? He's into it. You've probably seen that guy if you've ever gone to a concert. That guy who's like just standing off on his own. That's like David right now. He's just going nuts, okay? But Michael, Michael looks out the window. She's Saul's daughter, but more importantly, she's David's wife at this point. And she looks out the window and she sees David going crazy in his linen cloak and she's offended. And to be clear, David wasn't in his tidy whities okay? This wasn't, like, inappropriate in that sense. Uh, but David was just dressed like all of the common people. He, he just looked like an ordinary Israelite at that time, and he's going crazy, but Michael won't have it. And, and so David has to come home, because you always have to come home eventually, right? And, and so David walks in the door, and the text says then, David returned home to bless his household, and Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, And said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Some of you have come home to that before, haven't you? (laughs) Like, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. So here's where it starts to reveal what's really going on with Michael as well. And and actually, like, stories in scripture sometimes do this, where there's kind of a pattern, and there'll be like back-to-back stories that illustrate the same point. This is basically that, because Michael is upset, not because David was inappropriate or anything like that, but because David took off his kingly robe, because David dropped the charade, Right? David didn't look all regal and royal and, and all of his pomp and power that he was supposed to have. Uh, he basically laid down the celebrity couple thing for a moment, and he just made a fool of himself in worship of God. And Michael can't handle that because she loves the power. In fact, it's revealing that she's described three times throughout this passage, not as the wife of David, but as the daughter of Saul. Saul, the former king of Israel who lost his way and who was also all about power and appearance. Like Saul would have never done what David was doing. Saul cared so much about appearances. Saul was focused on the outward and how things looked. Saul, uh, he cared so much about being important and being elevated that he like lost his way as the king. And here Michael is doing the same thing. She's basically Uzzah 2.0 right? She wants things to look impressive on the outside. She wants to look like the wife of King David, right? Look at him in his robe out there leading the people. But when David lays all that down and humbles himself, she loses her mind. And again, it's this propped up religion that she was carrying. And I'll remind you with my little rhyme again, that a religion that you can control has no power to actually save your soul. A religion that you can control doesn't actually change you from the inside out because it's all about you. It's all about your effort. It's all about the thing that you're trying to keep propped up. And in fact, that's what happened uh, for Michael in this story. The next verse, it's kind of intense, so I left it out. But uh, what happens is God basically says, hey, Michael, you're missing the point. And because of that, you are never going to have a child with King David. Like the line is going to stop as far as she's concerned. But if you know the story, the line doesn't actually stop because Jesus comes from the line of King David. But that happens through a woman named Bathsheba. And if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, you know it wasn't like the most wholesome romance that happened, okay? It, it, was, it was a mess and it was wrapped up in all kinds of sin and brokenness. But what that tells us is that if we're taking back our life, God, in your life and in my life, is not looking for the perfect performance or the regal outer show of a Michael or an Uzza. People who look great on the outside, but on the inside, there's really nothing happening. People who, who look really impressive, but at their heart, or something different altogether, God instead is looking for the broken spirit that's willing to obey him and trust him, even if it's imperfectly, uh, for the salvation and for the hope and for the kind of life that only he can bring. And by the way, that's the powerful thing about the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant. It, in so many ways, it was a foreshadowing of what was yet to come when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem years later. Uh, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was this thing called the mercy seat. And those sacrifices I was talking about, the priest would go in and they would go in the very presence of God in the holiest of the holies and they would make a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could be forgiven and welcomed back into the presence of God because of their brokenness, because uh, of their shame. And years later, Jesus, another king in disguise to the people, right? Shows up in the streets of Jerusalem, not carried in some kind of impressive way, but carrying a cross on his back. And he's crucified and he dies and he becomes the sacrifice that makes a way for us to not just take back our life but to have our lives found in him to have our lives found in relationship with him and i want to like pause for just a second today if you're here today and that's news to you that life isn't about you just like getting it all together life isn't about you just white knuckling it and trying to have all the best habits or look the best or whatever if it's news to you that you can be reconciled to God through nothing but receiving a gift of grace, I wanna give you the opportunity to respond to that today. And it's really simple. There's no magic words, okay? Like I I can pray with you after the service if you want because I know prayer is uncomfortable and it's different, but all that it means is you just acknowledge your own brokenness. You acknowledge where you've gotten it wrong. And you say, God, I do need someone to make a way for me. And I recognize that it's you, that Jesus gave of himself, so that we could be in a relationship with him that's not marked by our performance, but it's marked by his goodness. And if you want that to be true of your life today, it can start in a moment. It takes a lifetime to figure out, but it can start in a moment. And if you wanna take that step, stop by the green tent or come find me, like I'll be right here after the service. I'd love to walk you through what that could look like. But as we begin to wind this thing down, I wanna give us all just like a couple of takeaways that we can see in how David responded in this encounter and how it can actually shape how we move forward as we continue to try and take back our life. Because this is an ongoing assignment. Okay, we're like, we're five weeks in, and some of you are like, I'm done. Okay, five is enough. But, but in reality, like taking back our life is a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong thing that we continue to work at and continue to learn. And along the way, one of the first things that we can see from David is that we can't let failure stop us. We can't let failure stop us in the pursuit of taking our life back. Maybe you've had an amazing five weeks right maybe you've taken all the notes you've applied all the things we've talked about and you're like oh my gosh I'm growing and like this is really good for me here's the thing at some point along the way you're probably going to get it wrong at some point along the way you're probably going to stumble a little bit we don't always get it right but we do keep trying and that's what happened with david he had this great desire to bring the presence of god back into the center of the life of the people but his first attempt ended with Uzzah dead and the Ark just like dropped off at Obed-Edom's house and, and he went back and I can imagine he just like hung out for those three months throwing his pity party like we do. Right? He probably went back and he played a lot of Xbox and ate a lot of Cheetos and gained like 15 pounds and, and like was just sulking. But eventually he turned a corner. He's like, no, it's still worth doing. And after those three months, he set up the second attempt that worked, that brought the Ark of the Covenant back in the middle of the life of the people. We can't let failure stop us from the things that God wants to do in us and ultimately through us. And I was thinking about it uh, in the very complicated, windy story of our church. (laughs) Some of you know this, some of you don't. Uh, We started this thing three times and uh, none of them really were expected. The first one was expected, but the restarts, not so much. And uh, we started out as a campus of a church that was based in Kokomo, and it was amazing. We had this like 18-month run where it seemed like God was doing incredible stuff, and we couldn't believe where we were headed. And then change showed up, and and our church merged with another church. And for me, uh, in more ways than I communicated in that season, that felt like failure. It it was this like left-hand turn, right-hand turn, (laughs) where I'm like, where are we going now, and and what does that look like? And, And I asked the question, like, Are people going to follow us here like are we gonna really we're going there okay so then we merged with this church and we had an 18-month run and i mean it was rocky covid was in the middle of that so it was all weird and blurry but uh, at the end of that we reached this point we're like no god's nudging us to jump out and go out on our own and start story church again and there i was again on the one hand feeling kind of like failure (laughs) like (laughs) well that didn't work the past 18 months are they going to do it again, (laughs) right? And some of you, God bless you, you've been here from the very beginning and you're still showing up. But man, for me, it was so tempting in certain seasons as we were going through this change to think maybe we ought to just give up, right? Maybe this is God's exit door for me saying like, hey buddy, you tried, great job for 18 months, go figure something else out, make pizzas or something. But I'm so glad that we didn't do that. I'm so glad that So many of you said yes for round one, round two, and round three for some of you. Some of you, you've joined the story later and that's amazing too. But I'm so glad we kept going because look at what we have now. right? Look at where we're headed now. There's so much exciting stuff on the horizon for us. And my point is failure could have stopped us if we would have allowed it. There's an amazing illustration of this probably sitting on all of our utility room or garage shelves somewhere. Uh, If you have a can of WD-40 around anywhere, do you know how WD-40 got its name? So WD and WD-40 stands for water displacement. That's what it was designed to do. It's designed to make water go away, okay? So water displacement, that's great. That's the WD part. But the 40 is what's so significant to me. Because do you know why it was WD-40? It's because the guy who was inventing this product tried 39 times before he got it right. And it was the 40th batch that actually worked. So now everybody all throughout, again, the garages, the utility rooms, have WD-40, this product's nationwide. I actually just found out you can get cologne that smells like WD-40 if you're into that kind of (laughs) thing. I don't really need to know, but uh, the 40th try worked, but that means the first 39 didn't, and he kept going. Right? He kept going, he kept going, he kept going, and eventually he created this product. That's great in the world of water displacement products, but man, think about it in terms of your faith. Don't let failure stop you and don't let failure hold you back. A second thing we can remember is we take our lives back. Uh, And this is, again, kind of a callback to week one. It's that you're never more vulnerable than when you're in victory. And and that's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because, like, if we are taking back your life and things are getting better and you're, like, making positive changes and, and you feel like God's really moving, it feels like I should be in the best place I've ever been, right? And in some ways you are. But you're also likely in the most vulnerable place you've ever been. Because when you start making progress, you also end up with a target on your back whether it's from your own bad habits and bad behavior that's gonna come back, whether it's from deception from the enemy, uh, you are always the most vulnerable when you're actually making progress and when you're moving forward. And so we have to be mindful of that. Like we said on week one, you have to keep your guard up, you have to keep yourself, you have to be intentional. And I love the way uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is a pastor and theologian, uh, talked about this idea. He has this quote where he says, pirates always look out for loaded vessels, right? Pirates don't rob the empty ships. Because there's nothing for them to steal in the same way scripture talks about how we have an enemy who's out to steal kill and destroy all the life that god wants to produce in us and that enemy is fully aware when you start making progress and you start growing that that there's something to steal from you there's something to take away from you and so you have to be on your guard and you have to be intentional and and finally something we see uh, in the life of david and something that you'll find if you really do try and take back your life It's this principle that what you see is what you get. It's kind of a callback again to the week where we talked about sight or where we talked about our thoughts, that where you focus is where you tend to end up. But think about this story. Uzzah, David, and Michael, all three interacted with the same ark. They all three interacted with the same God behind it, but because they were looking in different places, for two of them, the story ended up pretty badly. And for the other, he's known as a man after God's heart. How they saw it, how they viewed God and how they viewed their life in relation to God dramatically affected where they ended up in life and the same is true for you and the same is true for me we have to remember to keep our eyes on the bigger vision and the bigger picture of what picture of what God wants for our lives we can't get distracted with lesser things we can't let our guard down or we'll end up letting life slip away from us and again it makes me think of our church uh, because that third time around uh, it was about this time of the year it was in February Uh, we made the announcement that we were gonna launch off on our own and we had this vision and info night. And I felt the thing I had felt two times before where it's like, well, first go of it, is anybody other than my mom gonna show up? Like, (laughs) who knows? And uh, we had a group show up. and, And if you were there, like, you're amazing and I'm not putting you down in any way through this. But we were sitting there and I can remember in the back of my mind feeling like, can we do this again? Like, a lot of us were the same tired group of people who had launched a church twice in a row. Like, that's not easy work the first time, let alone f- signing up for round three. And I just remember in the back of my mind thinking, like, I don't know if we can do this. I was tired, right? It was the other side of COVID, and some stuff was going on personally for me that had me worn down. It's just like, can we, can we keep going? Like, should we do this? Or again, should I, like, go work at Burger King or something? I don't know. Uh, and the only thing that kept me going, the, the thing that, that made me want to continue is seeing what we could become. We weren't that impressive in that room that night as I'd stumbled through like, hey guys, we're doing it again. (laughs) And hopefully you'll come with me. It wasn't like a flashy, amazing night or anything like that, but it was this humble little beginning to what is becoming something much bigger. And there's some exciting stuff on the horizon for us. I can't wait to share with you uh, where we're going next. But it all happened because we kept our eyes on a bigger vision than what we saw in front of us immediately. The same thing can be true of your life that your life doesn't have to be how you find it right now. But God may want to do something bigger in you and through you down the road, and, and it's going to take time to get there. It's going to take consistently guarding yourself, being intentional, applying the things that we've talked about, and eventually if you stick with it, you may just find yourself in a different place than you find yourself now. But what if you asked your quest, ask the question, what might God want to do through you in this next season? What might God want to do in you in this next season? And then trust in him, Not for all the external flashy look at me kind of stuff, but for the inner work that actually takes back our lives. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.